Welcome to the Strange Matters Podcast, where we discuss everything that is bizarre and unexplained. I'm your host for tonight, Eric, joined by my fellow co-host... Sean. Thanks for joining us, Sean. No problem, glad to be here. So tonight we're going to be discussing a series of disturbing visitations in this episode entitled Unwanted Guests. So what do you think about these topics, Sean? Definitely freaked me out more than I thought they would. I know probably most people have been listening for a while know I take more of a skeptical approach to the these kind of paranormal stories. But, I mean, just reading some of the research behind these and seeing, like, you know, actual pictures and videos in some of the cases, I mean, I was, I was pretty freaked out. Yeah, I agree. I think most of the topics we discuss on our podcast are typically a little bit far-fetched, you know, paranormal, a little less less rational, kind of supernatural in general. However, these particular stories are, except for the first one, some of them are indisputable. It's just that we really don't know exactly what's going on. Right, and a lot of these take place, you know, in uh, kind of private, like places where you would think you would feel secure or safe, like whether it be your house or your neighborhood or, or what have you. So that kind of adds a little bit of extra spooky factor to it. Right, right. These are definitely pretty frightening stories. So without further ado, let's get into the first visitation on this episode, Unwanted Guests. So this first story is known as the Hexam Heads. And I wanted to say thanks to Chris for suggesting this episode uh, it was definitely a new one for me, and it was worth the read, worth the research. Um, so this story starts in Hexham, England, in 1972, at the home of the Robson family. And this family lived only ten minutes away from where the legendary Wolf of Allendale roamed the woods. Now, to provide some backstory on the Wolf of Allendale, this wolf made headlines in 1904 in the same area where the Robson family is living. The papers claimed that farmers had been experiencing a decline in the number of their livestock, particularly sheep, and much of the remains of the livestock would suggest that a wolf was the culprit. Despite massive hunting parties, the beast remained at large, and the people of the surrounding towns continued to grow more and more uneasy as there were you know, numbers of sightings and the livestock continued to decrease in number. Despite a few more sightings, the reports of this killer eventually faded and little was heard of the beast for decades. And so it basically without ever being captured or killed, the beast just sort of disappeared. And it actually reminds me a little bit of the episode we did on the French beast of Gévaudan, which we talked about in one of our earlier episodes. Yeah, and the Chupacabra as well, where you have these attacks going, and people apparently, you know, see some kind of beast, but are just unable to catch it. Exactly. So, getting back to the Hexham Heads, two young members of the Robson family, they're actually brothers, they're outside playing around in the garden, when they happen to dig up a couple of small stone carved heads. Uh, just from reading this intro, it almost reminds me of the beginning of some type of movie where, you know, you have, like, these two people, of course, kids, like, digging up, 
and they find these artifacts. They just think it's something, some little toy or something, but they have no idea what kind of mystery surrounds these artifacts or what's about to happen. And you're quip- quickly grasped by, by the feeling that this is going to be the scariest movie you've ever watched. Of course. So to describe the heads, they're roughly the size of oranges, and they were distinctly carved into the shape of human heads. So it's pretty clear that the that somebody had intentionally carved these into, you know, to to resemble a, a human face. So they have eye sockets. They had a nose, a mouth, and a neck, and certainly not something one would expect to find buried in the ground. One of the heads had a more masculine appearance and it was known as the boy whereas the girl had more feminine features and long hair so now the discovery of these heads led to a significant amount of tribulation for the robson family as the household suddenly began to become plagued with various horrific events in the days to follow this discovery before ultimately they were driven from their home so some of the events that occurred included what has been described as poltergeist-like activity. And the heads kind of had a tendency to move around on their own from location to location with, without you know, human intervention. Yeah, I don't know what, as far as this, the, the Robson family goes, whether they were believers in spirits or, or something, but um, I think anybody would start to kind of freak out or something if they brought these two heads and they're just displaying them in the house and then all of a sudden all this weird stuff things are being moved around noises are being made i mean i probably would have given it a few hours and then tossed those heads outside or something i was thinking the same thing i mean finding ancient heads is creepy enough on its own much less putting them on a hearth to just sit there and stare at you and then suddenly you notice that they're moving around the house and you know, weird things are happening. I I definitely would have chucked them in the garbage and moved that garbage far, far away. It's believed that these heads were of Celtic origin, as it's generally accepted that during this period, the head in Celtic antiquity was believed to be the seat of the soul, and many Celtic warriors would collect the heads of their deceased foes during battle. Dr. Anne Ross took possession of the Hexham heads as she was a collector and had many other similar artifacts in her possession. So, basically, the picture I'm trying to paint is that, you know, heads were... It wasn't unusual to have heads like this. It was strange where they were found, and all the other poltergeist-like activity was strange... But the heads, in and of themselves, was not unexplainable. Right. There are similar-looking head artifacts or trophies or just whatever you want to call them uh, that they found. But, I mean, once again, it's not really the type of thing you would just find in someone's backyard. Yeah, exactly. And Dr. Ann Ross, we'll talk about her a little bit later on. She has some issues. Yeah, I know there's kind of a... uh, a topic of contention for some people about this story where she's involved in it yeah exactly and we'll get into that in a little bit so she recounts upon first interacting with the heads she instantly disliked them as they emitted a kind of strange coldness that she couldn't you know really 
explain very well in words, but initially she thought that these heads had been cursed, and perhaps even the ground upon which they were found was some sort of ceremonial shrine, and even considered excavating the site with her archaeologist husband. Now, that wouldn't be the initial conclusion I would jump to, is that the heads are cursed just because I feel a little bit strange, but, you know, maybe she has more experience with stone heads than I do. Yeah, but I mean, you think anybody with a doctorate would be a little bit more fair-minded or try to approach it more logically than these things freaked me out. Let's go dig up this yard. Yeah. Because there's probably bodies buried or something. Yeah, it's kind of a a lot of illogical leaps that she's kind of taken, but... Yeah, yeah. You would like to think that somebody would, like you said, take a more rational approach. And she was a fairly well-respected, but according to some kind of somewhat quirky scholar... And again, she was no stranger to these types of findings, but she had an encounter a few nights after taking possession of the heads. So how the story goes is that Ross awoke early one morning around 2 a.m. with a cold, ghastly feeling that enveloped her. And she looked up from her bed and noticed a large figure standing in the doorway of her room. Now I'm going to read a quote from Anne Ross. And this is giving me chills just to think about. She says, It was about six feet high, slightly stooping, and it was black against the white door, and it was half animal and half man. The upper part, I would have said, was a wolf, and the lower part was human. And I would have again said that it was covered with a kind of black, very dark fur. It went out, and I just saw it clearly, and then it disappeared. And something made me run after it, a thing I wouldn't normally have done but I felt compelled to run after it. I got out of bed and I ran, and I could hear it going down the stairs. Then it disappeared toward the back of the house. So I think it's pretty clear to me that the beast we're describing is also known as a lichen or a werewolf. And That's what it sounds just, like. Yeah, just based on the kind of half-human, half-wolf description... But, you know, it's kind of like, what, what what exactly did she see? Or was she just making this up altogether? I mean, I guess it could have been a real animal. And, you know, waking up first thing, like 2 a.m. in the morning, maybe she was kind of foggy and thought she was seeing a, a werewolf when in reality it was like a cat or something. I mean, that's kind of kind of a reasonable explanation, more so than seeing a werewolf in your house. But... I mean, I've done some pretty weird things in my sleep. Yeah, I mean, that's that's what I'm wondering if... I want to say sleep paralysis, but just something happened that kind of made her momentarily hallucinate or think that something was in her room when it actually wasn't. Um, if there was something in her room, I doubt it was a werewolf. It was either, like you said, either maybe they had a pet or something, or, I mean, maybe it was an intruder, like, some guy broke into the house and was wearing like a, a heavy coat or like a fur coat or something. Yeah. And that's just yeah. what she, mean. I mean like it was 2 AM. So it's like almost pitch black. She's basically just seen like the silhouette and it's kind of like making out like some, a, a few details, but she's not actually seeing this like clear. So I can see how, you know, she looks up, she sees some figure and it runs away almost immediately. And she would later, I mean, just the fact that she just woke up, 
you know, maybe she thought, like, oh my god, it's a werewolf. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. And perhaps, you know, I mean, if there wasn't actually anything in the house, it could have very easily been a dream or a nightmare or a night terror or sleep paralysis, like you said. I think probably one of the strangest things, and this is a side note, but one of the strangest things that's ever happened to me, um, I was in my apartment sleeping on the couch, and I actually had an Inception-style dream within a dream. And in my deepest dream, I was in my apartment where I was in reality, but there was a shadowy figure in my apartment. And it scared me so much that I woke up out of my deepest dream into my second dream. And into my second dream, I had the exact same feeling, but I didn't actually see the shadowy figure this time. And it again scared me, and I woke up into reality, and I was just in my apartment. So that's probably one of the strangest things that's ever happened to me, but that could very easily be kind of what happened to Dr. Ross here. Who knows? She might have been on some type of medication or had a few drinks before going to bed that kind of added to this. Um, Or she could have just had some incredibly vivid dream like you just described, but woke up convinced that it was real. Yeah. So, oddly enough, what actually brings more validity to this sighting is that shortly before Dr. Ross had her encounter, only a few nights after the discovery of the Hexham heads, a neighbor of the Robsons, who was the family who first found them, the neighbor was named Ellen Dodd. She was sitting up late one night with her daughter when they both witnessed a half-man, half-beast creature similar to the description of what Dr. Ross would see shortly thereafter. So, with the Dodds, this abomination entered the bedroom of Dodd and her daughter, and both of the terrified females screamed. And the monster, as they described, was seemingly unconcerned with the screaming females and kind of, you know boorishly turned and left the room and pitter-pattered down the steps on his hind legs, leaving the front door open on its way out. And they would later report that they believed the creature appeared to be searching for something, and when it realized it was drawing too much attention to itself, it simply turned and left. So needless to say, these recent sightings raised tales and memories of the Wolf of Allendale, and many people around this town began to blame the Hexham Heads as having led to the re-emergence of this once-feared killer. I don't really know what to make of these stories. I don't know which... So which encounter had first, the Dr. Ross or the Dodd family? The Dodd family happened first. Okay. I'm almost wondering... Um, but they... This didn't come out till later. Like They and Dr. Ross never talked to each other, right? Right. Okay. Supposedly. I was going to say if, like, one somehow subconsciously influenced the other, but just the fact that they weren't connected, they didn't talk about it. Right. That is almost, yeah, too much of a coincidence for it to be two random hallucinations. Exactly. They had to have somehow influenced each other. Um, And Dr. Ross was initially claimed that she was totally unfamiliar with the story of the Wolf of Allendale at the time. And, you know, being an individual who was somewhat rooted in rational and scientific reason, 
actually initially dismissed her encounters as nothing more than a nightmare. So that was, you know, kind of what she chalked it up to, like we had just discussed. However, one day she came home with her husband, whose name was Richard Feacham, who, like I mentioned earlier, was an archaeologist. And they were perturbed to find their daughter in a state of bewilderment and fear. So once the daughter was able to get her wits about her, she admitted to coming home and using her key to open the door, only to be greeted by a dark, shadowy silhouette rushing down the stairs, jumping over the banister, and landing with a dull thud before disappearing. After these first couple sightings, the beast became almost familiar, yet nonetheless terrifying to this family, as even the cat would have multiple personal encounters with it. So as long as the Hexam heads were in Dr. Ross's possession, the wolf would continue to show itself around the house. So Hmm. they claimed that there were a number of sightings. Yeah, that's, I mean, that seems like every person in the family is now seeing it. So it's not just her. Right. And, you know, I have a little bit of trouble drawing a connection between the heads and the Wolf of Allendale. It's just like, you know, why would these heads cause the Wolf of Allendale to come back as a werewolf walking on its hind legs looking for it? It doesn't make sense to me. The only thing I can kind of see is if, you know, some... I don't know, witch doctor or somebody came over with the heads initially near the 1900s and then basically started the wolf into Allendale. If he brought this so-called, you know, this beast-like thing that always appears around their heads that just kind of follows it around. That's true. And, you know, buried it. And then that's when the wolf of Allendale disappeared, basically. Uh, I mean, again, that kind of sounds like the plot of a movie. I don't know if I actually buy into that, but I'm just, I'm trying to think of any type of reasons to kind of link these two separate legends together. No, that's reasonable. I, like you said, I think it's a pretty small bridge, um, but it's definitely wouldn't make sense theoretically. And it's a, it's a potential explanation. There could be, you know, different similar explanations, but unfortunately this independent report of a similar encounter to Dr. Ross's left her convinced that these sightings were somehow attributed to her collection of heads. So she not only gave away the Hexam heads, but also her entire collection of Celtic heads. And eventually, as the story goes, the Hexam heads made their way to the British Museum. And this is where things get even more strange. They are no longer on display at the British Museum on account of a series of strange events that took place in the museum itself. So I couldn't really find any other information on this aside from this anecdotal statement that there were strange events but yeah i kind of probably saw the same thing but some people were saying that the museum just kind of took them i mean nothing for anything drastic they just took them away but just because of the legend kind of surrounding it as like later on people added the weird stuff happening at the museum so i don't know if it's actually weird stuff happened and the museum is trying to downplay it or if nothing happened and it was just fabricated later that supposedly weird crap was happening at the museum also. So that's kind of a, its own separate mystery. But I mean, like you said, there's really, unfortunately, not too much information about that aspect to it that I could find. Precisely. And some 
believed that the heads were not actually Celtic, but rather had been carved by previous inhabitants of the Robson family residence and simply got lost in the garden. So Des Craigie was the individual who came forth claiming to have actually created these items as toys for his children in the 1950s. So I don't know. I think we see this a lot in some of our episodes is somebody's just stepping forward to claim some sort of fame and look right. it worked we're, we're we're saying his name you know 60 years later so yeah and i know he kind of showed he's like here's proof and he kind of showed other heads that he carved um which were kind of similar but apparently they were made from different rocks or, or something from the original hexam heads right and i mean like he's probably seen pictures of these so i mean basically i mean anybody could probably try to do some like carve their own heads and be like oh no i'm the one who really did it yeah, yeah, exactly. And the universities of Newcastle and Southampton actually examined the heads for dating purposes and to just kind of like figure out what they were made of. And they found a high concentration of quartz. So apparently the heads are, you know, primarily quartz. But, you know, besides that, they didn't really find any really interesting telling information. So there are many details surrounding the heads, and they're still kind of in a bit of hot debate. However, despite these many conjectures, one thing is agreed upon universally, and that is that no one currently knows the whereabouts of the Hexam heads. So it definitely adds a a decent layer of mystery to this story as the heads just disappeared and we don't know where they are. But, you know, they could very easily have just gone, gone away. Yeah, I mean, somebody could have stolen them, or they could just be fallen into some crate at the museum or something. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I don't... I mean, the legend right now is probably more important to the people than actually trying to locate these heads. Just as... I mean, probably a lot of people don't just believe it as an urban legend, and a lot of people don't really buy Dr. Ross's. I've read a few accounts that people say that she was kind of trying to play play up the legend and that her accounts aren't entirely believable but i mean i mean what can you say she was the one there so there's a few people who said that they saw weird things and you know it's kind of up to other people to see whether they believe them or not yeah if nothing else it's it's a pretty interesting story so that wraps it up for the hexam heads now on to our next unwanted guest of the night sean take it away all right. All right. So the second unwelcome guest we are going to be talking about today is the legend of the man in the attic. This story was suggested to us by Samuel. So thanks, Samuel, for telling us about this. It was definitely new to me. New to me as well. Yeah, it's a good story. So the man in the attic, also known as the haunting of Jackie Hernandez and also the San Pedro poltergeist is one of the more well-known accounts of poltergeist activity occurring in the U.S. And for those who don't know, a poltergeist is a ghost or other supernatural being supposedly responsible for physical disturbances such as loud noises and objects being thrown around, stuff like that. There's actually a few really kind of crazy recordings of poltergeist activity on the internet. I don't know if you've seen them, Sean, but there's one particular one where a guy living in a house with a alleged poltergeist and he sets up a video camera in his kitchen and you just see doors opening cabinets opening at random and stuff 
being tipped over. It's pretty creepy to watch because, you know, you can't really see any strings and it appears to be legitimate. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. It's like, it looks real, but there are all people... There's always people who are trying to, like, pick holes and be like, oh, it could just be an electric switch or something. Yeah. Or, you know, just, like, fishing line that you can't see with the camera. Right. But, yeah, I mean, for the people who actually experience this kind of stuff, I mean, it's pretty damn scary. So this man in the attic ghost is a pretty personal encounter with a poltergeist. Yeah. And, so, and according to those who investigated this case at the time... I um, think it's quite possibly one of the most extraordinary and credible recorded incidents of paranormal phenomenon ever. And this particular poltergeist incident gained popularity after it was featured on the hit TV show Paranormal Witness, which I actually watched the episode on this, and it was pretty good. It was pretty good. Yeah. So this whole story begins in 1989 in San Pedro, California. So Jackie Hernandez had recently split with her husband and had found a bungalow house to rent. And she moved in there with her two-year-old son, and she was about six months pregnant at the time with her daughter. I mean, nothing of note really happened the first couple weeks, basically just normal stuff, moving in, getting ready. And, I mean, things seemed to be going fine for Jackie at the time. However, about a month after she moved in, this is when strange things started to occur. So at first she was hearing these odd noises in the house. And what Jackie said that it sounded like someone dropping pebbles on the ground or something like that. Pretty odd noises. And as far as she could tell, she thought the sound was originating towards the top of the house, like in the attic. And then almost nightly she was also hearing these high-pitched noises that were hurting her ears. And, you know, just these weird noises were just getting louder and louder and more frequent all the time. Later on, Jackie and one of her friends named Susan heard a noise in the kitchen. And so they went to investigate, and they saw that one of the pictures that she had hung up had fallen off the wall and was leaning up against the wall behind the sink. And the two nails that had been supporting the picture were found across the room on the table, laying on their heads pointing straight up. And Jackie couldn't explain at the time, saying that, you know, this is impossible someone or something would have to have done that. Nails don't come out of the wall and go onto the table sticking right upright. Right, exactly. It's, and, and not to mention they crossed a significant amount of space. Yeah. And were placed on a table, so pretty uh, pretty extreme. And I mean, plus the fact that they, they heard the picture fall, and I mean, probably took five or ten seconds for them to go into the kitchen. So I mean, if someone had been in there and rip the picture down it's kind of too much to ask for them to do that put the nails and get away before anyone's seeing so very odd no one could explain it at the time and later on then Jackie had hired one of her neighbors who is a 16 year old girl named Tina and to help take care of the kids and babysit every once in a while and they were also kind of friends and they would just you know hang out and talk with each other And one time when they were in the kitchen of the house, Jackie noticed something behind her and got Tina's attention. And both of them turned around and froze as they saw what looked like several glowing orb-like objects floating up around the ceiling. And Tina would later say that they didn't look like reflections, but rather they had some type of substance to them, so they were actual objects and not just 
tricks of the light or something. Now this, I found this a little bit interesting because I don't know, I don't watch that many ghost documentaries, but it doesn't really seem like poltergeists and orbs go together most of the time. I mean, based on what I've seen, orbs tend to be sort of benign whereas the polar guys are very violent and very upset. So, I mean, like I said, I'm no expert on this, but it just seemed a little out of place. Yeah, and most orbs, or at least, you know, accountings, a lot of times people don't actually see them. They just take pictures, and it turns up. And so most people think that what we call orbs in the the paranormal world is just kind of tricks of the camera. It's just something that's reflecting light. But... In this case, they were actually seeing the orbs. They were actually witnessing it. So it wasn't something that they could only see through a camera. Like, they were right there, like, looking at these things kind of dancing around on the ceiling. That's true. I mean, speaking of cameras, so Jackie had a camera nearby, so she quickly grabbed it and started taking pictures. And she was able to snap off a couple of pictures, but then all of a sudden her camera stopped working. And so Jackie was kind of frustrated and handed the camera to Tina to see if she could do anything. Um, and Tina was kind of freaking out at this point, obviously, as any 16-year-old probably would. And Tina would say later that when she was handed the camera, she thought maybe the camera wasn't working because it was, you know, pointing or trying to take pictures of the orbs directly. And so as a test, she turns around and points the camera out the kitchen window. And then what she does is she looks through the viewfinder and she suddenly screams because through the viewfinder she saw the face of an emaciated, almost skeletal-looking old man. And Tina just screams and drops the camera and just runs out of the house as fast as she can. That's crazy. It kind of reminds me of like the Amityville Horror or something. But definitely adds a a certain amount of legitimacy to the story. I mean, it seems like something that would happen in a movie. Yeah. I mean, there's several things that actually make this case more legit, is that as we go on, like, more and more people are going to start experiencing these things. So it's not just one or two people. Pretty much everyone who comes to the house sees something. And also, they actually have uh, the pictures that Jackie took of the orbs. Um, I mean, I'm no expert. I don't know if it could be faked or not. But throughout this case, as we'll get to, there are actual pictures and stuff of several events. So that kind of adds a little bit of credibility to it. So one of the terrifying moments of this whole situation came one night. Jackie was laying awake. Basically, she was just feeling uneasy about all this strange activity happening. She's kind of worried about her kids. She moved her son to share with her bed because she didn't want her kids sleeping by themselves. And she had recently given birth to her baby daughter, so she was in the bassinet right next to the bed with them also. So suddenly Jackie starts to hear what sounded like this loud, raspy breathing, like through the walls. So she gets up and wants to investigate and leaves her bedroom and notice that the sound seems to be coming from her son's room. And she said that the fear that she felt at that time was indescribable as she was walking through that hallway. And when she got to the room and opened the door, she saw with absolute horror the image of an old, decrepit man sitting on her son's bunk bed. And she just freaks out and screams, and just instantly the old man like turns at her, 
but then just vanishes right in front of her eyes. After a moment of pure fright, she kind of recovers, but then she's startled again as all the window shades in the room suddenly just go up on their own. And so she just, she runs back to her room, grabs her son and daughter, and she's scared out of her mind and just trying in vain just to rationalize what was happening in this house, as I'm sure anybody would. I mean, this stuff is just crazy so far. Yeah, I was going to say, I think just saying that her fear was indescribable is a pretty accurate way of describing how somebody would feel in this particular situation. Just hearing about it sends chills down my spine. Yeah, and it's it's scary enough, yeah, reading this stuff or, like, hearing them talk about it. But, I mean, just to imagine being in that house at that time, it's right. just... It's just crazy, and I mean, Jack. And it, it's like it's like you've got two teeny tiny little children, and you're a female, and you're all by yourself, and except for a ghost in your house, and not just a regular ghost, but an angry one, a poltergeist. I don't know what I would have done. Yeah, I'd, I I would have moved out the first night. But yeah, I mean, Jackie said that during this whole time she felt hopeless as if there was something in the house that was in there long before she moved in and something that didn't want her living there. She said that she felt like an outsider or intruder in her own house. So it's almost at this point that she's the unwelcome guest in this story. So, I mean, at this point, Jackie, she wants to get out. Understandably, I think anybody would want to get out of this house experiencing all this weird stuff. But she just didn't have the money it would take to move suddenly and leave her house abandoned. So just for financial reasons, she's basically stuck in this seemingly haunted house. So, I mean, she's starting to, to freak out and she just can't take it anymore. And she, for one night, she takes her kids and herself over to her friend Susan's house. And they're in desperation. They don't know who else to turn with. Susan gives Jackie the number of a parapsychologist. And Jackie at first is a little reluctant, but takes the number with her anyway. And basically the last straw for Jackie happened when she was in her kitchen and she was washing the dishes. And she noticed all of a sudden that she had blood all over her dish gloves. And so she quickly strips off her gloves and starts checking her hands. But after a few moments, she found out that she wasn't actually cut, so the blood wasn't coming from her. So she starts to look around... And what she finds is something that looks like blood is oozing out of the wall by the kitchen cabinets and dripping and leaking down into this sink. And once again, this is a scene that's like straight out of a horror movie. And obviously she freaks out and she runs right to where she left the number that Susan gave her and finally contacts a team of paranormal investigators as basically a last ditch effort for help. So several paranormal investigators came to Jackie's house and they brought along several photographers and cameramen to see if they could actually document any sort of sightings or activities kind of as proof. So the investigative team shows up and this is where things, believe it or not, get even stranger. So several of the lead investigators start to interrogate Jackie and some of them are skeptical of basically the scope of activity that she was claiming was occurring all in her house. I mean, some people might say they saw 
you know, a ghost, or they had one weird thing happening. She's pretty much seeing stuff every day that is basically unbelievable. It just doesn't make any sense. Right. And if if you're a good paranormal investigator, then I think it's probably in your job description to be a little skeptical of these things. And if you've ever watched TV shows about like ghost hunters or something like that, everything they find seems tends to be a little bit kind of a stretch. Like they'll put out the the recording devices to like listen for ESP or EVP and they'll take cameras and take pictures and they'll find the orbs that we talked about but all of it seems to be pretty much a stretch yeah it's like a lot of the recordings like they take you know be some kind of ghost voice and like at first it like it really doesn't hear it doesn't sound like anything but they'll be like oh no it's saying get out and then when you yeah. hear it again it's like okay it could be saying get out or it could be saying you know something else it, it just it's kind of it almost they're kind of forcing their evidence to match their conclusion without you know looking at it fairly right and they they put that out there and then of course listening back with what they've already put in your mind yeah okay fine i can hear the voice saying that but this wasn't at all the impression i got with this story no i mean these guys they came i mean prepared they were I mean, pretty professional, and like I said, they were kind of setting up what they wanted to do. They had a bunch of cameras and, like, a pretty large crew um, for this one house. So, I mean, they definitely didn't take her for her word right away, and they wanted to see for themselves what all was going on. And they were in for a pretty big shock. So, they start to ask her some preliminary questions, basically just to figure out what Jackie had experienced, if her story was changing, what kind of, you know, what her mindset was. In the middle of their questioning, basically the power just shuts off. And everyone kind of freezes, and it's just for a few seconds, and just as quickly, the lights came back on. And some of the guys were just like, oh, it's just a power surge. But, of course, Jackie felt that something was going on, and that was when the first time where a few of the paranormal team started to think that something was in the house and it was responding to their outside presence. So literally right off the bat, you know, just 15 minutes and something weird is happening in the presence of this this team. And, I mean, they're going around, they're checking everything, and before they left, one of the team leads asked two photographers named Barry and Jeff to go into the attic and look around. And Jeff was not a believer that anything paranormal was happening. And he whispered to his partner, Barry, as they were going up to the attic that he said, it'll be a cool drink in hell before I believe there's a ghost in this house. So I said, these these guys weren't really super believers going in. They didn't really think they were going to find anything. So the two of them, they go up into the attic and they find it pretty much empty. You know, it's just a standard looking attic with dust and cobwebs around. And the pair start taking a few pictures around just to get a sense of the layout. When all of a sudden, one of the cameramen, Jeff, who was a skeptical one, says that he felt like the camera was either slapped or literally pulled out of his hands. And before he could react or try to pick up the camera, he was pushed or thrown back against the wall. 
And so Jeff screamed and he freaked out and he quickly climbed back down and told the others what had happened. And this is when they all start to think that something weird is going on. Um, but of course, Jeff's kind of more practical. He gains some clarity and he says he has to go back in the attic because he needs to get his expensive $2,000 camera, regardless of if anything paranormal was going on up there. So Jeff and Barry, they go back up, they find the camera, but they find the lens had apparently been separated from the camera and was found in a completely different spot. They can't figure out anything that's going on, they don't understand it, and they just quickly get out of there, uh, confused as to what the hell just happened in that attic. And their team was getting ready to go, and Jackie was kind of upset because they didn't really offer any solutions. They basically just came, took some pictures, and then they were leaving. And without any offering to help her at all. And just as they were getting ready to go out the door, everyone stops because every single person in that house could hear clearly what sounded like someone walking back and forth above them in the attic. And everyone who had been in the house at the time was presently standing in the same room. So this is the attic that they had all just been in and found it totally empty. Yes. And they could, I mean, it, I think they actually have footage of this. And you can, there's the people in the room and you can hear what sounds like footsteps just up above them. And like I said, there's no, there was no one up there. Even Strander, so the red ooze that Jackie had seen while washing the dishes, that had started dripping down from the walls and kitchen cupboards again while the team was at the house. And so they actually collected some of this substance and had it analyzed in a forensic lab at UCLA. And they found that this mysterious red ooze was actually human blood plasma. Particularly, it was plasma that had high levels of iodine and copper, oddly enough. So this stuff wasn't just, you know, something leaking out of the house. It was frickin' human plasma that is leaking out of the walls of this house. It's crazy. I mean, the, the high levels of iodine and copper, you know, these are metals. I mean, one might, you know, think that perhaps somebody had taken some blood plasma and put it in a copper tube or something and then dripped it out of the ceiling. But I don't know, that seems a bit of a stretch to me. I don't think there's any real logical explanation to this. I mean, that's a hell of a lot of work if you're trying to prank somebody. Yeah, to exactly. Find, and I mean, it's a pretty decent amount of plasma. And the the thing is, blood plasma is not easy to come by. I mean, it's basically your blood minus the red blood cells. So right. it's not like you can just take it out of your arm. You'd have to get a centrifuge and you know separate the blood red blood cells and then extract the plasma by itself. Exactly. So yeah. This isn't something that just anybody can get their hands on blood plasma. Yeah. I mean, it's not like somebody was just like you know cut themselves a little bit and smear blood to scare the people. It's more complex than that and kind of unexplainable. And it's a lot, too. It's a lot of volume. Yeah, it was it was everywhere. So all that happened and all that craziness, the team had left. And Jackie pretty much had one more frightening night before she called it quits. And basically she was laying down... She awoke and she felt like something or someone was physically attacking her on her bed. And she couldn't breathe and she literally thought this was it. She was going to die. But 
then all of a sudden, like, the pressure released, and she could move. And she ran away, and she just did not feel safe staying in the house anymore. So she's like, I'm getting out of here. She called the investigation team one last time, saying, you know, things are getting worse. I, I don't want to have anything to do with this house anymore. And some of the crew members came back and arrived that night. And the photographer, Jeff, who had been attacked in the attic previously, when they got there, kind of took charge and said that he wanted to go and investigate the attic again. He wanted to see if he could figure out what the hell had happened to him up there. So the skeptical man kind of got up there. He wanted to see what caused the disturbance. But this time, things would not end well for Jeff. And he and a buddy ventured up into the attic to see if they could find out anything, basically. Yeah, I was going to say, it's it's people like Jeff who are always the first to go in the really good horror movies. Because they're <laughs> the skeptical ones. They're the ones that think it's all just BS. They're willing to take more risk, like going up in the attic a second time. So yeah. this guy's he's asking for it, basically. <laughs> he's like, I got to go back in there, man. Camera's up there. <laughs> and he gets it. <laughs> yeah, so he got... So basically... You have Jackie and the other team members who arrived, and they're kind of nervously waiting below. And Jeff climbs up into the attic with his teammate named Gary. So Jeff has a flashlight. They're kind of just shining along. They really don't see anything. It's basically, you know, it's just an empty attic. All they see is cobwebs again. And there's this time there's no sound coming from anywhere in the house. Everything's completely silent. So Barry, the videographer who went into the attic last time with Jeff felt like something was watching the whole group as they were all kind of bundled together and as as the group below all felt this nervous energy and they didn't they felt like something bad was going to happen so they all started to urge the men to you know come back down and the pair of men in the attic start to move towards the opening and this is when things kind of reach a climax and get really crazy. I can hold on at at this point in the story. I can just feel the tension. I mean, the two up in the attic are in a very vulnerable position. If you watch the video, it's not like a huge attic where you can just sprint down the stairs really quick. Like they have to like crawl out of it. Yeah, and, yeah, there's no like there's no stairs. They have to literally like lower themselves down. Right. And they're trapped in there and everybody below them is saying, Y'all gotta get out now. Yeah. So the people down below, they like hear what sounds like a three snaps, like three kind of popping noises. And as Gary kind of peeks down the attic to the people below, all of a sudden he hears this sound behind him. And he turns around. But instead of seeing Jeff right behind him like he was, Gary sees only darkness of the attic. Now, he doesn't have a light on him. So he's kind of venturing further into the attic where he thinks he sees the outline of Jeff on the opposite wall. So having no light on him besides his camera, he raises his camera and snaps off a shot. And the flash shows for a split second Jeff seemingly hanging his feet dangling off the ground, and his face white with shock. So Gary rushes over and grabs his partner, and Jeff kind of gurgles out that something was on his neck. And Gary reaches up and finds that there's a clothesline or cord that's basically acting as a noose around Jeff's neck. 
and it's tied to a nail in the ceiling. So Gary kind of picks up his partner to relieve the pressure and yanks down on the nail and manages to rip the rope away. Finally, to the shock of everyone below, Jeff makes it to the opening of the attic and starts to shakingly climb down with the help of others, and he's just visibly, like, freaked out. Um, his glasses were missing that that were on when he went up there, and his face looks just... He's scared, just crapless, and he just looks drained of blood. And the rope that was used to strangle him is still dangling around him, and you can see a bright red line showing all across his neck where the cord was cutting into him, cutting off his breathing. And, I mean, this might sound all too crazy to have actually happened, but there was actually photographic and video proof of this encounter. And, like, looking at the picture, it just, like, places me in the attic with these guys when this is happening. It's just, like, pure fear comes over you when you see this picture. And the first time I saw the picture, I thought the guy was dead because his face is pale. He does look dead, yeah. He's suspended from the ceiling. But when he comes down from the attic, he's just, like, in shock. He's like, I barely know what just happened to me and he's still pale and he's got this red line around his neck it's pretty pretty much the most legitimate ghost encounter i've ever read about i know some people have said that they could have just been faking it but it, it seems like a real reaction to me and if that guy is as good of an actor as that then he should probably be doing something more than just taking pictures or something <laughs> right the pictures that Gary took as he pointed his camera towards Jeff um, when he was using the flash kind of as a light actually came out just as they described. And I mean, like we said, it's probably some of the freakiest photos that I've ever seen. You can actually, if you look online, do a little digging, you can find the, the real footage of the crew. And you can see for yourself as Jeff kind of comes down from the attic and he just looks scared out of his mind guess that poltergeist showed him yeah i think next time we'll just next time we'll just leave his camera up there all right that's what you get for being a skeptic yeah we'll make sure to put this picture up on our website for those who want to check it out pretty intense yeah it is it's pretty creepy and i mean that would be understandably the last night that jackie would ever stay in that house you know despite the money problems she basically just moves away immediately she's completely done with the house the, the house has been rented several times since then, although no one reportedly has had the same type of bizarre activity or attacks that Jackie, her friend, or the paranormal team encountered. But also, no one stays there very long, so maybe something is weird happening. About this case, though, is why I think it's a little bit more credible than most, is that decades later, after this happened... Not a single person involved in this whole case has altered or changed their story in any way. I mean, from Jackie, her friend who was there, the babysitter who's all grown up now, the investigators, even the cameraman who was attacked in the attic. To this day, they all believe that something was in that house that wanted them out, and they are all haunted by what they went through. And that is pretty a pretty credible piece of evidence for their story because, you know, even in, in the story of the Hexham Heads, Dr. Ann Ross changed her story multiple times. And, you know, I've, I've been in situations with lawyers where I'm being deposed and I can have 
experience an event and be telling the complete truth and have lawyers punch holes in my story that causes me to kind of, you know, alter my story and be like, am I really remembering this right? But these, these people, their stories were completely consistent even years after the incident occurred. Yeah. I mean, like I said, they weren't trying to make any money. None of them wrote any best-selling books. It's just this weird event that happened for like, like a dozen people involved and they all have no explanations to it to this day. Yep. So if you haven't checked out the, uh, the footage or any of the pictures, definitely worth looking into. Right on. All right. So yeah, that's the end of the man in the attic encounters. So next we'll be moving on to our third topic of the episode, the Jacksonville clowns. So Eric, why don't you get us started? Yeah, so listening to your last episode, Sean, is really what kind of inspired me to bring up the Jacksonville Clowns, and it's sort of similar. I was actually initially thinking about including the story of the clown midget um, in this episode, Unwanted Guests, but seeing as how you already covered that, figured I'd take this to a new level with the Jacksonville Clowns. So it's actually started happening in Jacksonville, Florida in 2014, pretty recently. Um, Around Halloween, there were a series of bizarre clown sightings that had been popping up all over the city of Jacksonville. And the craze seems to have started in California and made its way to the southeast. So for all our listeners out there in California, um, thanks for getting this started. It's been pretty freaky story to investigate so to some it's nothing more than amusing however others find it threatening and disturbing a lot of people are afraid of clowns yeah there are a lot of people who are afraid of clowns and i think you know the people who aren't afraid of clowns are probably you know need to be the subject of one of our episodes because it's definitely not normal to not be afraid of clowns anybody who's seen (laughs) You know, Stephen King's It or something like that is just innately terrified at this subject. And I was actually reading about somebody who had heard about the Jacksonville Clowns or experienced them. And they were saying, you know, I'm not really, really scared of clowns, but even these clowns were pretty terrifying to me. So these sightings have mainly been reported through, like, surveillance cameras where... They'll be checking their security footage, and the clowns will either stalk houses from the sidewalk, and sometimes they'll even come up onto people's porches. And in many cases, the clowns are not are not unaware that they're being observed. So, in one recording, a particular masked clown stands on the porch of an innocent victim's house and proceeds to stare directly into their surveillance camera while violently tearing a pumpkin to complete shreds. And if you're watching the video, it's almost as if he's saying, you know, this is going to be you next. Just wait till I get in the house. Yeah, because, I mean, he's not cutting this. He's, like, pounding it with his fist and ripping right. it apart with his bare hands. Right. It's it's pretty pretty intimidating, honestly. I'd be freaked out just knowing that this person was on my porch, much less doing something concerning, like ripping apart anything. Yeah. 
However, to my knowledge, no further occurrences happened at this particular residence. You know, there weren't any break-ins, there were no murders, nothing like that. And as far as anyone can tell, the victims are pretty much selected at random. However, in some areas, it's likely that the clowns are targeting friends and acquaintances who they know are able to take a joke and won't freak out and call the police. So, And like you said earlier, it's almost like they want to be seen. Because, like I said, they'll they'll come up and they'll stare into the camera. Exactly. Or they'll make a big show. So it's it's almost like they're going after houses where they know that there will be footage. Right. And, you know, despite the somewhat disturbing and troubling recordings, it would appear that nothing serious has really ever happened as a result of these reports. So I think, you know, most people think that these are just kids, they're just playing around, and it's not really going to amount to anything. So, but still, it's it's pretty freaky. Yeah, I mean, you have, anytime you have clowns going around at night, walking into up to people's houses, it, it's, it's not pleasant. I would be, <laughs> I, would, I would not like that. It definitely will give you the jitters. So hopefully the clowns stay down in Jacksonville. Yep. Yeah, hopefully we don't have any sightings of those here in Virginia. Yeah. It did kind of remind me a little bit of the uh, the Bunny Man urban legend that we covered that took place in Virginia. True. That's that's a good, uh, good comparison. And I was actually talking to one of my co-residents who says she was from uh, northern Virginia where the Bunny Man story originated and she said she remembered hearing stories of the bunny man and she had actually gone to visit the bridge so i thought that was a pretty interesting coincidence oh nice so on to our final story of the night and this is in my opinion we've saved the best for last this is quite easily the second most terrifying video i have ever watched especially after hearing the story about it. And this story is known as The Woman in the Ceiling. Before we get started, what's your first most terrifying video? Shoot. I did that intentionally, and now I'm trying to remember what the first most terrifying video was. Damn it. <laughs> Why am I blanking out on this? Apparently it didn't leave that much of an impact on me. Is it the video of yourself being born or something? <laughs> Oh, <laughs> uh, man. I don't know. I'll have to think about it. I'm sure it'll come back to me when I'm trying to sleep or something, and then I <laughs> wake up in a deep sweat. But anyways, back to the woman in the ceiling. So about seven years ago, an actor named Joe Cummings uploaded a video to YouTube that would strike fear into the hearts of many and it starts off showing himself, Mr. Cummings, explaining how he had noticed food missing from his apartment that he's sure he had not been eating. Additionally, he'd been hearing strange noises at night that he could not explain. And he suspects the culprit to be his girlfriend, who lives with him. It's a reasonable explanation. Yeah. And they're living together in this apartment. However, she disagrees, claiming that she has not been stealing any food. And as a result of this dispute, Mr. Cummings, unbeknownst to his girlfriend, 
sets up a surveillance camera in his kitchen, expecting to find his girlfriend either, you know, lying to him, eating his food, or, you know, possibly sleepwalking, something like that. So the camera, filming in a green-hued night vision, records several hours of nothing, and then it happens. A dark figure appears coming down from the ceiling. First, it's a single leg, and then an entire body steps down from the shadows and crouches into a spidery silhouette. And it's actually a woman with her dark hair draped over her eyes, almost reminiscent of a scene from The Ring or The Grudge. She climbs down from a table that she had allegedly been using to climb into some sort of compartment in the ceiling. She then proceeds to walk over to the refrigerator, open the door, and begin drinking from a carton of milk. Over the course of several minutes, the video shows her rummaging through his pantry and eating his food, as well as actually urinating in his sink. And the terrifying footage shows Cummings coming out of his room to use the bathroom and the homeless woman hears him and kind of freezes and then she almost robotically and kind of like a, a, a spider scrambles for cover behind you know what we believe to be some sort of furniture a chair or something as Cummings passes directly past her through the kitchen to the bathroom and you know presumably within reaching distance so basically if this had been someone with any sort of if this had been a nefarious individual with any sort of malicious or malintent she very very easily could have you know reached over and killed Cummings without having to try it would be the last thing he would ever suspect yeah so after he returns to his bedroom she comes back out of the shadows and continues about her business before crawling back into the cubby in the ceiling. And upon seeing the video, Cummings claims to have left his apartment and called the police, who had the woman removed. Of course, Cummings claims that the video and the story are all truly authentic. No one really knows the truth regarding whether or not the story was what it claims to be. It's definitely freaky. Yeah, no kidding. This is, I mean, I'm getting, I'm getting like chills right now just, just reading thinking about, it about yeah. yeah, just thinking about somebody being in your house. It's, it's horrifying. And yes, this story is in question. Any kind of story that's as popular as this one that's made its way into the spotlight, there are going to be critics out there. And, you know, personally, I've heard of stories of squatters living in people's, like, summer homes where, you know, people don't – they're not there year-round. And in some cases, there are actually loopholes in the laws that if a homeless squatter lives in someone's home for long enough, they're legally considered to be a tenant of the home. And this can involve hefty legal fees to try and get someone removed from your house in this type of situation, and it can really cost people a lot of money. However, for someone to actually live in your apartment that's currently co-inhabited by the actual owner, 
is a concept that's just incredibly frightening to me. So personally, I think it's a little convenient, you know, the timing of the whole the whole film. There's a few elements that were almost perfectly crafted, almost too perfectly crafted. So like the way Cummings wakes up the next morning and drinks directly from the milk carton that the alleged homeless woman had just drank from a few hours prior, it's kind of almost like they're going for that shock factor, like the person watching the video they're trying to elicit a response like, ooh, don't drink that, you know? Yeah. I, I was like, almost surprised like he doesn't like hold it up and kind of shake it a little bit and then drink like, oh, this is lighter than I thought. Yeah, yeah. And exactly. And, you know, who, if you wake up in the morning, is, is milk really the first thing you go for? Maybe. I don't know. But it just seems a little too, too perfectly crafted for me. Yeah, I mean, I haven't mentioned the fact that he actually walks right past her. Yeah, that's the other thing. You know, and it seems almost too fast. If you're watching the video, like, as soon as she darts out of the camera, he walks directly past where she just came from. Yeah. So, the other thing is that Cummings is actually an actor, and this is not something that would be very difficult to stage. And also, one would like to think that there would be so much evidence that it wouldn't be difficult for him to go very long without being, without discovering the woman in his house and that it wouldn't, you know, take video footage to prove it. So for example, if someone to were to urinate in my sink, I think it would be highly likely that I would either a smell the urine in the sink the next day or B hear the sink cut on to wash it down the drain. Yeah. And, you know, what happens if she has to defecate? Are we just to assume that, you know, she waits till he leaves the house to use his bathroom? Or, you know, where does she do this? Yeah, I mean, it could be. I, I mean, you just think that you would hear some kind of sounds coming from the attic or, right. like, just something. But for her to just silently sneak down every night just to have a little bit of food and then basically what just goes back up and hibernates for 23 hours... Right, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, regardless of the authenticity of the story, this film did manage to strike terror into the hearts of millions of viewers. And as someone who, in some sort of sick way or another, enjoys being scared, personally, I thoroughly enjoyed the video. Yeah, I mean, the whole thing is, I mean, even if it is fake, it's still creepy and scary. Definitely, and I think I think the thing that makes this story so scary is that regardless of whether it's true or not, it's something that could very possibly happen and be real. Yeah, I mean, I, I heard of someone and who bought a house when they moved in, and they found like what looked like a squatter who had been living in the attic. So I mean, it's not the same. It wasn't like someone actually living there while he moved in, but it still shows that. I mean, some of these people might sneak into attics, and who knows? Some of them might turn out to be lunatics or something. Definitely. Just kind of like your uh, schizophrenic clown story that you Mm -hmm. told us about in the last episode. Yep. Stories like this just make me glad that I have a dog who barks very loud. That's true. That's true. Although I I don't put a lot of faith in my dog, personally. He's a Bichon, but... 
know, hopefully if he heard something throughout the day, he would do more than just piss his fur. Yeah. <laughs> you would hope. Not likely. Nah. So that's it for this episode entitled Unwanted Guests. So if you've ever had anyone living in your attic before or if you've experienced or know someone who's experienced the Jacksonville Clowns or has anything to add about the Hexam Heads, please feel free to comment on our website. Otherwise, if you'd like to add anything, please feel free to email us at strangematterspodcast at gmail.com. Also, if you have any topics for future episodes, whether it's a mystery, a crime, or something paranormal, or anything creepy like the stories we discussed today, please send those in as well. Also a reminder that Strange Matters is a member of the Dark Myths Collective. Dark Myths is a collection of podcasts that range from mysteries and weird stuff like we cover, but also several history podcasts and some fictional ones. A lot of good shows, so if you are looking for other podcasts to listen to after you've checked all of our stuff out, head over to darkmyths.org to see the whole lineup. And if you're listening to us on iTunes, please feel free to rate us and leave us a review. Until next time at Strange Matters Podcast, take it easy, everybody. See ya.